What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Nine Days in July is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios in association with High Five Content. It's July 18th, just two days before Apollo 11 is set to land on the moon. White House speechwriter Bill Sapphire sits down at his desk to write a speech he hopes the world will never hear. Sapphire has the unenviable job of giving President Richard Nixon words of comfort for the nation should Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin not make it off the surface of the moon. Just stop and think about that for a second. Pretend you don't know how this mission ends. Put yourself in Sapphire's place on July 18th. Apollo 11's triumphant history hadn't even been written yet. And given this astronomical challenge, the president had to prepare for the worst. I will now read you the memo in its entirety, as President Nixon would have had tragedy befallen Apollo 11. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. They will be mourned by their families and friends. They will be mourned by their nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by a mother earth that dared send two of her sons into the unknown. In their exploration, they stirred the people of the world to feel as one. In their sacrifice, they bind more tightly the brotherhood of man. In ancient days, men looked at stars and saw their heroes in the constellations. In modern times, we do much the same, but our heroes are epic men of flesh and blood. Others will follow and surely find their way home. Man's search will not be denied. But these men were the first, and they will remain the foremost in our hearts. 
For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. That letter now rests in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. Other than some manageable issues with the computer during lunar descent, the Apollo 11 mission has gone off without a hitch. Then, last night, as Buzz Aldrin lay on the floor of the lunar module trying to sleep, he noticed that the switch that supplies electrical power to their ascent engine had been snapped off, probably when he and Neil were taking off their bulky gear from the moonwalk. Without that switch, there is no way they're getting off the moon. Sapphire's letter now seems hauntingly prophetic. It's July 21st, day six of the Apollo 11 mission. Since the dawn of time, the moon has captured the human imagination. It began as an object of spiritual influence and veneration. As science gradually replaced mysticism, the moon became an object of profound intellectual curiosity. We spent a lot of time discussing how we got to the moon and what we did once we got there, but we spent hardly any time at all talking about the moon itself. Today, we're going to dive into how the moon has been viewed down through time, how it was created, and what it is still teaching us. High in orbit around the moon, Command Module Pilot Michael Collins is woken by Ronald Evans in the Capcom seat back in Mission Control. Columbia, good morning from Houston. Hey, Mark, how's it going this morning? Well, you're fine. Really how's it going you? <laughs> Real fine here. In just a few hours, the Eagle, currently resting on the lunar surface as Tranquility Base, will leave the moon and climb through space to reunite with the Columbia. But before that happens, Michael has a lot of work to do. He has 850 individual key commands to work through in the coming hours. 850 chances for me to screw it up, Michael thinks. Now it's time to wake the occupants of Tranquility Base. Except they're already awake. Tranquility Base. Houston, over. Good morning, Houston. Tranquility Base, over. Did you get a chance to uh, curl up on the engine cam? Uh, Roger. Uh, Neil has raised himself a uh, really good hammock with a uh, weight tether. And he's been lying on the uh, engine cover, and I curled up on the floor, over. The truth is, neither Neil Armstrong nor Buzz Aldrin got very much sleep last night. Between the terrible accommodations, temperatures that never exceeded 61 degrees Fahrenheit, all the blinking console lights in the darkness, and the knowledge that their only means off this rock was compromised. The two men spent a miserable night shivering inside their spacesuits. Finally, Buzz gave up trying to sleep and turned his attention to the broken switch. Without the ability to trip that switch, the Eagle isn't going anywhere. Eagle and uh, Columbia, this is the backup crew. Our congratulations to yesterday's performance and our prayers are with you for the rendezvous. Over. As Neil and Buzz prepare their moonship for departure, they take a couple minutes to gaze out the windows at the magnificent desolation outside and snap a few photos. They even turn the cameras on each other, capturing several iconic images. Both men look positively exhausted, yet there is a sparkle in their eyes, the sign of having experienced something utterly transcendent. Okay, I assume we're, uh, we're going for liftoff and we'll proceed with the uh, SNP. Uh, Roger, that's correct. And both ED batteries are go. ED stands for Explosive Devices. When they are ready to launch, small targeted explosions will separate the ascent stage from the descent stage. Okay, master, I'm on. At five seconds, I'm going to get aboard the stage and into arm. You're going to hit the stage, right? Okay, it's finally time to address that busted circuit breaker. 
As you can hear, clearly both the crew and mission control think this launch is going to happen. So how do they fix it? Given the fact that the lunar module is perhaps the most technologically advanced thing humans have ever created up to that point, and that an army of America's brightest minds are on the astronauts' proverbial speed dial, you might be expecting some complex high-tech solution. But no, Buzz saved the day with something he found in the pocket of his flight suit, a chrome-bodied felt-tip pen. He sized it against the hole where the broken switch used to be and discovered that it was almost the exact same size. Buzz stabbed the pen into the cavity and discovered, to everyone's relief, that it fit perfectly. The ascent engine had its power. Going to and from the moon was an unbroken daisy chain of dumbfounding successes, both sophisticated and simple. More than 60 miles above them, Michael feels like a nervous bride. Despite nearly two decades of flying and thousands of hours in the cockpit, he has never been more anxious than today. If everything goes according to plan, he merely has to sit tight and wait for Neil and Buzz to come to him. But if there are any issues after they blast off, he may have to swoop down and retrieve them. He needs to be prepared for anything. Michael has been harboring a secret dread for months now, that something is going to go wrong on the moon, stranding his teammates and forcing him to abandon them and return to Earth alone. Michael knows that if Neil and Buzz die on the moon, the mission will forever be viewed as a tragedy rather than a success. And you're cleared for takeoff. Roger, understand. We're number one on the runway. The ascent engine is their only way off the moon. There is no plan B. If the ascent engine fails to work, Tranquility Base will become a memorial. That's something 11-year-old Andy Aldrin, Buzz's youngest son, who is glued to the TV beside his mother, understood all too well. That was the one time that I was, you know, a little bit freaked out because I had complete and total faith and NASA's ability to execute the mission. I had complete and total faith in the technology, but I was very much aware that in order to get off of the moon, one engine had to work, the lunar ascent engine. You know, it wasn't like a regular launch where you can do a do-over. To minimize any potential complications, NASA designed the engine to be as simple as possible. It doesn't even need an ignition source. Twin pumps combine the fuel and the oxidizer, which combust on contact with each other, and away they go. At least, that's the plan. A split second before the engine is to fire, a horizontal guillotine severs power cables between the two stages, and explosive bolts disconnect them from each other. The engine fires, and in a cloud of moon dust and insulation, flings the ascent stage from the lunar surface. Look at that stuff go all over the place. Look at that shadow, beautiful. 30, Back on Earth, glued to their living room television sets, Janet Armstrong and Joan Aldrin begin weeping with relief. As the eagle rises, Buzz allows himself a quick glance out the window. The bottom half of the lamp shrinks beneath him, surrounded by all the experiments and litter they left on the surface to lighten the vehicle. The flag they planted yesterday, which was so hard to drive into the compacted soil, is blown over by their exhaust. And everywhere are their boot prints, evidence that humans trod on another world. Given the moon's lack of atmosphere, wind, or water, those boot prints remain there still today, just as they left them, a silent witness to history. And they will remain that way for millions of years. 
Shortly before Neil and Buzz left for the lunar surface, Mission Control told them what they might expect to find on the moon. Watch for a lovely girl with a big rabbit. An ancient legend says a beautiful Chinese girl called Chang'o has been living there for 4,000 years. It seems uh, she was banished to the moon because she stole the tale of immortality from her husband. You might also look for her companion, a large Chinese rabbit. And you're seeing the live feed from Chang'e probe. This is the pictures taken on the camera of Chang'e 3 of the lunar surface. It should come as no surprise then that when the Chinese landed a rover on the moon in December of 2014, it was named Jade Rabbit. It landed on the moon. Chang'e 3 is on the moon. Chang'e and her rabbit are just one of countless myths associated with our celestial neighbor. The moon has attracted uh, our attention for not just millennia, not just uh, tens of thousands of years, uh, but presumably even longer. Humans, probably even pre-humans, have been looking at the moon since the beginning of time because it's this object that's always there and it's much larger than any of the other objects in the sky. Those two voices you just heard are Dr. Ed Krupp, the director of the Griffith Observatory, my favorite spot in Los Angeles, and Dr. Addie Dove, a planetary scientist at the University of Central Florida. You know, you could look at almost any civilization in antiquity and you would find immediately that the moon was deified. There are countless legends about the moon spanning every culture on Earth. And this would apply, for example, to ancient Egypt. The moon was known as Kansu, uh, and it was, in fact, a, a personification of the moon and was a very important part of Egyptian religion. In, in Mesopotamia, uh, the god was known as Sin. You can go to ancient Greece, where the, the, the moon was a woman uh, who drove a, a, a chariot across the sky, Selene. Uh, was her name, and, and she followed the highway of the moon and the sun through the stars, uh, just as the moon does. Uh, the Romans basically took that same image, modified it slightly, but the goddess Luna was the Roman goddess of the moon. And so it would go. You can work your way around the world from one culture to the next. To the Hindus, the moon is Soma. To the Maya, she is Sochil, the goddess of fertility. For the Inuit, it's the god Aningan, who spends every day chasing the sun goddess, mad with lust. His body waxes and wanes as he expends all of his energy toward the chase, disappearing a dozen times a year to hunt and gorge himself for the next leg of the hunt. To tribes in Western Africa, the moon is Mawu, one half of an epic love affair with the sun goddess Liza. Eclipses, they claim, are the deities in the throes of lovemaking. Ancient cultures quickly realized that the moon was more than a source of light and beauty. It was also a means by which they could chart time. Our word moon is actually derived from an archaic word that means to measure. And that alone tells you that from deepest antiquity, the moon was, in fact, a vehicle for measurement. It would tick out these convenient bundles of days uh, one month or month after another as it went through those changes of phases. And those months, those cycles of the moon, seemed at least to a degree coordinated with the seasons. And the seasons are what it's really all about. Changing seasons affect anyone's ability to survive. 
Many Chinese festivals are rooted in the lunar calendar, and both Judaism and Islam are guided by its celestial ebb and flow. The moon has long been thought to have the power over people's bodies and minds. The association of the moon uh, with fertility is part of this idea of the birth and growth and death and rebirth of the moon. You have the parable of, of fertility built into this idea of cyclical renewal. Fertility and the moon have long been linked, since the female menstrual cycle and the lunar cycle are of similar length. People say that there are uh, more babies born, for example, at the time of the full moon. Uh, but when you actually do the statistics, this just doesn't pan out. While such beliefs don't hold water in our scientific era, Dr. Krupp thinks they made perfect sense to our ancestors. And you can easily imagine people looking at the world and trying to understand how it works. And the, the, the most critical thing they see is that things essentially come and go, uh, whether it's the, uh, the plants uh, seasonally, uh, animals, other living things, in, including ourselves. And this idea of birth, growth, death, and then rebirth is absolutely underscored in the changing phases of the moon over the monthly cycle. Historically, the moon has been blamed for the darker elements of the human personality, from sleepwalking and suicide to criminal activity and violence. The moon, it has been claimed, can drive people mad. In fact, the words lunacy and lunatic are derived from the Latin name for the moon, luna. The strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was inspired by the strange but true tale of a Londoner who committed crimes during the full moon. And, of course... The most obvious application of lunar madness that most people uh, know about comes to us via Hollywood uh, from a, a European tradition. And, and this is the idea of the werewolf, where uh, a human being is transformed at the time of full moon. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Back on the Eagle, the moon is falling away. A very quiet ride, just a little bit of a slow wallowing back and forth. Roger, mighty fine. Looking good here. A pretty spectacular ride. Soon, the Eagle reaches a vertical speed of 80 feet per second. The LEM is now soaring over the same landmarks it descended over yesterday. Seven minutes later, the engine cuts off. And the engine on. Down. Now that the engine is shut down and Neil and Buzz are once again in microgravity, the men notice a slight haze in the cabin. It's all that lunar dust now hovering in the air all around them. Now that the Eagle is in lunar orbit, it's safe to turn on their rendezvous radar again. In our minds, miseducated by too many sci-fi movies, we think of a spacecraft merely lifting off and zooming straight to its rendezvous. But that's not how orbital mechanics work. From the moment the ascent engine fired to the docking of the two craft, three and a half hours and two orbits pass. Before they can dock, Eagle has to match Columbia's orbital shape, height, and speed. And they don't have a lot of fuel to do it with. As Michael monitors their progress, he's relieved his greatest fear has not come to pass. But now he wonders if they have enough fuel to catch each other. Luckily, as you may remember from episode two, Buzz literally wrote the book on rendezvous in outer space. Here in Mission Control, Flight Operations Director Chris Kraft commented that he felt like some 500 million people around the world were helping push Eagle off the moon and back into orbit. Now it's time for a series of short burns to get the two craft back to each other. The Eagle is about 100 nautical miles away from Columbia and closing at roughly 99 feet per second. Since the Eagle set down far outside its predicted landing zone yesterday, NASA had Michael training his instruments on the Sea of Tranquility with every pass, trying to locate the ship. He was never able to find his crewmates. This is Apollo Control. Range between Eagle and Columbia now showing 67.5 nautical miles. Closure rate, 121 feet per second. The black team of flight controllers here in Mission Control are more or less in an advisory capacity during this rendezvous sequence. They're actively computing maneuver times, but in the final analysis, it's uh, onboard computations by the crew of Columbia and Eagle, which uh, really bring about the rendezvous. Up to this point, Michael has just been waiting. Now he begins to prepare the command and service module to meet the LEM. Two burns down, only one to go. The fancy orbital mechanics are more or less done. The two spacecraft are less than 40 miles apart now, close enough for a line of sight thrust. The Eagle is making a beeline straight for Columbia. It is now about 15 miles below the command service module and closing. Aboard Columbia, Michael feels like a hotel manager preparing to welcome guests in from the cold. He's looking for the Eagle through the sextant 
The LEM starts off as a tiny, indecipherable blinking light, framed by the enormity of the moon. But soon, its recognizable bug-like shape comes into view. For millennia, humans look to the heavens and try to tease out their fate, messages from their gods, and portents for their lives. Then Galileo Galilei changed everything. In 1609, he used a telescope to examine the sky, not for signs and wonders, but to understand it scientifically. Dr. Ed Krupp. When Galileo first points a telescope up to the sky uh, a little over 400 years ago and looks at, among other things, the moon, he winds up not just finding out something about the moon, but transforming our perspective on the Earth, on the universe, and, and on ourselves. Since Aristotle, it was believed that space was part of nested heavenly orbs and that all the celestial bodies, including the moon, were perfect spheres. But Galileo challenged accepted orthodoxy, largely unchanged since the third century. Dr. Eddie Dove. When Galileo built his telescopes, he was able to start doing even finer details of what he could see on the lunar surface. It was this completely different way of looking at the universe. Galileo saw shadows on the moon's surface, indicating that it was not smooth. It had lofty mountains and deep chasms. Once Galileo um, and then other astronomers were able to start looking in finer detail, we could see that it was this other planetary body that's actually shaped by similar processes to what we have here on Earth. Telescopes didn't mean we got everything right. Prominent astronomers began predicting entire civilizations lived on the moon. Even William Herschel, the British astronomer who discovered Uranus, asserted that evidence of aliens could be clearly seen through his telescope. Still later observers thought that the dark patches might be oceans of liquid water, while others swore they could make out vegetation. And where there is water and flora, they said, there must be life. In fact, it wasn't until Neil and Buzz sat down on the moon that it finally began giving up its secrets. Sure, we built ever better telescopes over the centuries and then built spacecraft to photograph the moon from orbit. But it wasn't until the 20th century that astronomers applied the principles of geology to the study of the moon and began forming hypotheses around how it came to be. Apollo 11's up-close inspection and the keepsakes they brought back transformed our understanding about what the moon is. More on that in a moment. Right now, in Colombia, Michael is preparing to welcome his shipmates home. One of those two bright spots found to be blank. How about picking the closest one? Good idea. You're not confused on which end the dock with, are you? It won't be long now. Buzz can see Michael orienting the capsule for their docking. Michael turns on the video camera to film the Eagle's approach. Yeah, we're in good shape, Michael. Break it. Okay, we're about 11 feet a second coming in at you. Michael is about to take one of the most famous pictures of the entire Apollo program. In one image, he gets the Earth, the moon, and the eagle. Every single human being alive is in that one picture, except for one, himself. Okay, Mike, I'll try to get position here, then you got it. Neil and Buzz bring the eagle to a stop, and Mike swoops down to complete the docking. Jesus, he thinks to himself, we're really gonna pull this off. There's a slight nudge as the spacecraft meet. Okay, we're on yours. I'm pumping up cabin pressure. Both spacecraft have been on the far side of the moon for this final maneuver. They now re-emerge on the Earth-facing side as a single spacecraft. This is Apollo Control. Columbia and Eagle now reunited to become Apollo 11 again. Eagle, Columbia. 
When Michael opens the hatch separating the two ships, he finds himself face to face with Buzz, covered in moon dust. Michael is overwhelmed with a sudden urge to grab Buzz's balding head and give it a kiss, but imagines that act making it into the history books and decides to shake his hand instead. Buzz and Neil start passing Michael their moon samples. Here are a couple of bags. Here's one of those $300 boxes. Got a lot of weight, now Michael quickly realizes he has to ensure he has a firm hold on the rock boxes. As heavy as they are, they feel as if they could easily get away from him and sail right through the side of the ship. Hello, Eagle. Houston, do you read over? That's Charlie Duke in the Capcom seat. He took over from Evans while Apollo 11 was on the far side of the moon. Since the Eagle is now docked tight, Michael lets him know it's the Columbia he's reached. Houston, this is Columbia. Read you loud and clear. We're all three back inside. The hatch is installed. We're running a pressure integrity check. Everything's going well. Roger, Eagle. Uh, correction, Roger, Columbia. We copy. You guys are speeding. You beat us to the punch. Now, your friendly white team's going to be on until uh, we uh, get you on the way home. And we'd like to congratulate uh, everybody on a successful rendezvous and a beautiful EVA. It was uh, a great show for everybody. Over. Thank you, sir. I'm telling Now that everyone is united and the lunar samples have been stowed aboard Columbia, it's time to say goodbye to the Eagle. Hello, Columbia Houston. We'd like you to start down your jettison checklist. Over. They can't take the Eagle home with them. It's done its job spectacularly, but it's no longer needed. You can jettison at your convenience. Okay, let her go in 10 seconds. Have you ever teared up getting rid of an old car? Sure, you know it's just a machine, an assemblage of metal and wires and rubber, but it also literally drove you through so much of your history. Though they'd spent only a couple of days aboard her, Neil and Buzz take the loss of the Eagle hard. They can't bring themselves to flip the switch and ask Michael to do it instead. There she goes, it was a good one. Roger, Dodger. We got uh, Eagle looking good. Uh, it's holding cabin pressure and it picked up about two feet per second from that jettison. The Eagle's carcass will remain in orbit around the moon for several years before smashing into the surface, rejoining its other half. Afterwards, Charlie Duke and Michael spend some time catching up. How's it feel up there to have some company? Damn good, I'll tell you. Uh, I bet, I bet you can almost be talking to yourself up there after 10 rounds or so. No, no, it's a happy home up here. It'd be nice to have uh, some company. Be, matter of fact, it'd be nice to have a couple uh, hundred million Americans up here. Right, uh, they were with you in spirit anyway, at least that many. Uh, we heard on the uh, news today, 11, that uh, the New York Times came out with a uh, headlines, the largest headlines they've ever used in the history of the newspaper. Same as a copy. I'm glad to hear it's fit to print. The motto of the New York Times is, of course, all the news that's fit to print. Speaking of news... Congratulatory messages on the Apollo 11 mission have been pouring into the White House from world leaders in a steady stream all day. Even the Soviet Union sent congratulations, though the only mention about the moon landing in the main Moscow newspaper was a small story at the bottom of the page buried inside the middle of the newspaper. Some newsmen estimate that more than 60% of the news used in papers across the country today concern your mission. The New York Times has had a, such a demand for its edition of the paper today, even though it ran 950,000 copies, that it would reprint the whole thing on Thursday as a souvenir edition. It turns out that NASA weren't the only ones delighted with Apollo 11's success. 
the Italian police reported that Sunday night was the most crime-free night of the year. And in London, a boy who had the faith to bet $5 with a bookie that a man would reach the moon before 1970 collected $24,000. It's pretty good odds. Neil's wife, Jan, was asked by the press if she considered the moon landing the greatest moment of her life. She said, no, that was the day we were married. And that about covers the news uh, this day. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. In Apollo 11, man's first landing on the moon, there was no objective more important to science than the collection and return of samples of the lunar surface. Within five days after the samples were picked up on the lunar surface, where they had lain for millions of years, they were delivered to the Lunar Receiving Laboratory at the Manned Spacecraft Center, Houston, Texas. Inside special vacuum chambers and nitrogen-filled cabinets, decontamination measures were taken, and the containers were opened. Samples were examined, described, photographed, and weighed. They were then prepared for preliminary physical and chemical analysis. Amazingly, 80% of the moon hall has yet to be analyzed, as Dr. Dove explains. A lot of the samples we have from the lunar surface are still kept in the sort of baggies they came back in, and they haven't been opened just because we want to keep them as pristine as possible so that when someone has a new idea or a new technique, they can study an actual pristine sample and not one that's already been exposed to, for instance, our atmosphere that's going to interact chemically with the rock. Our ideas mature and we get new ideas on what to look for and we get new technology with which to look for them. That was Apollo 17's Harrison Schmidt, geologist and moonwalker. 
analytical chemistry has advanced in the last 50 years to where now we can tease out of these rocks things that uh, we never imagined we could do 50 years ago. The Apollo program hasn't ended for lunar scientists and probably never will. From their studies and discoveries, basic new knowledge and understanding will emerge and basic new questions. The beginning of what one investigator has called a new science. The 20% of the rocks that have been studied have completely transformed the moon's origin story. We really didn't know much about the moon. <laughs> Most of our ideas before Apollo 11 were wrong. <laughs> in the scientists' preliminary studies of the lunar samples in the Lunar Receiving Laboratory, there were several significant findings. For instance, all the rocks are similar chemically, which points toward a family relationship. Firstly, the rocks from the moon are very similar to the rocks found right here on Earth. We were able to do chemical analyses and age dating and look at isotopes and say, actually, the, the chemical makeup of the lunar rocks and their ages are very similar to what we have here on Earth. And it's really hard to have those be so identical unless they basically came from the same starting pool. Perhaps the most interesting discovery was that the volcanic rocks are at least three billion years of age, dating back as far or perhaps further than the oldest rocks ever discovered on Earth. And that got scientists thinking. Did the Earth and the Moon share a common ancestor? Our current understanding of how the Moon was formed is that it was through a giant impact. Impacts are very, very, very common in the early solar system. Something probably a little bit smaller than the Earth was hit by a Mars-sized body. Um, when that collided, there was a lot of material that was thrown out into orbit around the Earth, and it sort of coalesced together to form a moon. This is known as the giant impact hypothesis. For millions of years, both the Earth and the moon were molten spheres. After about 100 million years, rocks floated up and created the lunar crust of the moon, and the planetoid crystallized and hardened. Then came millions of asteroids, meteoroids, and comets. The moon doesn't have an atmosphere to protect its surface. So all of these impacts get all the way to the surface and then they're recorded over the history of time. All of these impacts pulverize the moon's surface, creating several inches of a powdery surface we call regolith. It's the best word. I love saying regolith. Typically on the moon, the regolith is actually pretty fine. So it gets to particle sizes that are smaller than the width of the human hair, for instance. But while it may look as soft as fine ash, it is anything but. Sand on the Earth gets rounded because it gets rolled around with each other and with the ocean um, and with wind, and so it gets really rounded. On the moon, the broken up bits of rock stay super jagged. While Neil and Buzz didn't have any issues, later Apollo missions, particularly those in which the astronauts were more active and, as a result, fell more often, reported that the lunar soil was so abrasive it began to cut into their spacesuits, releasing precious and critical oxygen. Have you ever noticed that your view of the moon never changes? The orbit of the moon around the Earth is interesting because it's actually what we call uh, synchronously orbiting or tidally locked. Because of this, many people assume that the moon does not rotate, but it does. So it goes around the Earth one time and it also spins on its axis one time. And the result of that is that if they're perfectly in sync, we always see the same side. So from our perspective, Observing from down here on terra firma, the moon appears as if it's frozen still. Other than pictures taken by the spacecraft and the astronauts who visited it, no human eyes have ever seen the so-called dark side of the moon. In addition to all those craters, 
you've no doubt noticed that the moon is covered in both light and dark patches. These dark regions that are called mare, and they're actually lower topography. And then lighter regions that are called the highlands, typically. The dark regions are from lava flows that sort of seeped out from under the surface when those big craters happened um, and sort of filled in those regions. So how large is the moon? Well, it's about 27% that of the Earth, roughly 2% of the planet's overall volume. If the Earth were hollow, we could fit 50 moons inside. That's a lot more than you thought, I bet. In fact, the United States is roughly half the circumference of the moon. If you were to lay a scale outline of America over top one of the moon, it would almost perfectly fit on the observable surface. We're in a pretty special time in the history of the Earth and the moon in that the moon uh, right now is the size it is, and it's just far enough away that in the sky it appears to be the same size as the sun. Lunar and solar eclipses remain a thrilling sight for Earthlings. So there are... Um, the sun is much, much farther away, but it's much bigger. So in our sky right now, they look like they're the same size. Um, so this is how we get eclipses. But sometime in the distant future, there will be no more total solar eclipses. Because believe it or not, the moon is drifting away from us. It's at the rate of a few centimeters per year, actually. The moon has been moving away from the Earth, it turns out, for most of its history. So as the moon moves further away, it's actually going to get a little bit smaller to our view, and we won't get these total solar eclipses like we see uh, today. While the moon is 238,000 miles away from the Earth now, it was roughly 1,400 miles away when it was first formed. Imagine how much larger it would have appeared in the sky then. And how do we know the moon is moving away from us? The crew of Apollo 11, of course. Do you remember that laser reflector? We can measure the amount of time it takes to get there and then come back. And that tells us how far away the moon is because we know how fast light moves. In a couple billion years, Earth's tides will also act very differently. Because despite what Bill O'Reilly thinks, we know exactly why the Earth's oceans, which cover roughly 75% of the planet's surface, behave the way they do. The moon has gravity and the Earth has gravity and they tug on each other. If the Earth was just a solid body like the moon, we wouldn't even observe this very much. But because the Earth is covered with all this water, um, these forces and these tugs actually pull at um, the water at different times of day and at different amounts. And it ends up causing tides. The Earth's gravitational pull also affects the moon. It causes moonquakes that occur deep beneath the lunar surface. And just how do we know that? Yeah, the seismometer that Neil and Buzz deployed. There is still so much more to learn about the moon. Nearly everything we know came from six Apollo moon missions. 80 and one-half hours on the surface, and 842 pounds of moon rocks. Now that the gear is stowed, it's finally time for Apollo 11 to head home. This is Apollo Control. Uh, at this time, the crew should be involved in their pre-trans-Earth uh, injection status checks. The trans-Earth injection burn is, as Michael Collins refers to it in his biography, the get-us-home burn, the save-our-ass burn, the we-don't-want-to-be-a-permanent-moon-satellite burn. As they strap into their couches, Buzz realizes he is at the end of his physical limits. He has barely slept in three days and is running on pure adrenaline. All he wants to do is sleep the rest of the way back to Earth. Apollo 11, Houston, you're a go for TE hour. Apollo 11, thank you. One minute to LOS, go second. Thank you, sir, we'll do it. Once again, you will not be surprised to learn that this burn will take place while the spacecraft is behind the moon. And we have lost of signal now. 
Well, let's see. That's, the motors point this way, and the dancers escape that way, therefore I'm pointing it that, that way. Normally, a joke like that would be all Michael, but that was actually Buzz. Perhaps his sleep deprivation is relaxing him in more ways than one. Okay, stand by, Val. The burn is powerful enough to pin them to their seats. Man, that feels like G, doesn't it? Tank pressures are good. Transdirect injection should be completed in about 10 seconds from now. Standing by for engine on. Shut down now. When the engine cuts off, the astronauts find themselves weightless again. And we should have shut down at this time. At this point, Apollo 11 should be traveling at a speed of about uh, 8,660 feet per second or about 5,900 miles per hour. And to be on its way back to Earth, uh, headed for a splashdown in the Pacific Ocean at 195 hours, 18 minutes. Yes, I love you. You are a hero. Back on Earth, Charlie Duke and everyone in mission control are eager for news. Finally, Columbia emerges for a final time from behind the moon. Anybody got any toy screens they want to make in Houston? The best burn I've ever seen in my life, I'll tell you. I guess you guys have seen two good ones today. So simple. Hello, Apollo 11. Houston, how did it go? Over. Time to open up the LRL doors, Charlie. LRL stands for the Lunar Receiving Laboratory, the facility at NASA's Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, now known as the Johnson Space Center. Here is where the astronauts and their lunar booty will be quarantined upon arrival back on Earth. There are some very expectant lunar rock scientists waiting. Roger, we got you coming home. It's well stocked. Secretly, Michael hopes that stocked means loaded with vermouth and gin. He is craving a martini. As they fly from the moon, they become tourists once again gazing out the windows to look longingly at the world shrinking behind them. And just like that, the hardest phase of the mission is over. They successfully landed and walked on the moon. There's only one harrowing element of the mission left, atmospheric reentry, but it's still several days away. For now, Deke Slayton, the director of flight crew operations, has a more immediate concern. Congratulations on an outstanding job. You guys have really put on a great show up there. I think it's about time you power down and got a little rest over you've been a mighty long day here. Hope you're all going to get a good sleep on the way back. Given how long they were up on the moon and how little sleep they got in the cold and cramped lem, Neil and Buzz can't agree more. Thank you, boss. Well, uh, we're looking forward to, uh, to a little rest and a restful trip back and uh, see what we can do. Right, you've earned it. Slayton passes the mic back to Duke, who lets the crew know that they have ceased receiving data from the Eagle. Oh, okay, very good. This was uh, death of a real winner, sir. Without its life support systems and heaters running, the vessel has succumbed to the cold of space. 2.7 Kelvin, a fancy space way of saying negative 455 degrees Fahrenheit. As Apollo 11 races back to Earth, it is simultaneously moving further away from it. Because after millennia of humans gazing up at the moon in both worship and scientific marvel, we have finally visited another world. And in so doing, we have demonstrated to ourselves and anyone else who might be watching from the stars that humanity is now a spacefaring civilization. Day six is over. Day seven, July 22nd, begins with our next episode, in which we describe an epic showdown between two titans, the United States and the Soviet Union, as they use the space race to wage the Cold War. And one thing will become abundantly clear. America would have never reached the moon before the Russians without a whole lot of help 
from the Nazis. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios. Executive producers, Ash Sorohia and Scott Bernstein. In association with High Five Content and executive producer, Andrew Jacobs. Amazing research and production assistance by associate producers, Brianne Chosaw and Natalie Robamed. Our incredible editor is Bill Lance. Original music by Henry Benoit. Special thanks to Andy Aldrin, Dr. Ed Krupp, director of the Griffith Observatory, and UCF planetary scientist, Dr. Eddie Dove. Special thanks to everyone at NASA who made this podcast possible, especially the incredible technological wizardry of consulting producer Ben Feist, who's responsible for organizing and cleaning the 11,000 hours of mission audio you're hearing selections from in this podcast. Special thanks also to consultant Gina Delvac. Licensing rights and clearances by Deborah Correa. This is a brand new podcast, and we're so excited to be sharing it with you. Help us spread it far and wide. Tell your friends, leave ratings and reviews, and chat about it on social media. Our hashtag is 9DIJ. We would love to hear what you think. New episodes come out each week, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brandon Phipps. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next episode. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.